0: Welcome to the Urban Echo Podcast, an exploration into sound and its effects on stress in cities through design. I'm your host, Oscar Schrag. My guest today is John Roach. John is an artist, sound researcher, and professor teaching interdisciplinary design at the Parsons School of Design. His work as an artist is multidisciplinary and often pairs sound with varying mediums. In this episode, we'll discuss his journey in working with sound, his multidisciplinary approach, and his Parsons-based research work called the Sound of Mound Project, in collaboration with Arable Labs, which seeks to explore sonic engagement with land data readings at Fresh Girls Park in Staten Island. I wanted to start with how you discovered sound as a medium, and kind of what it means to you now.
1: Well, I, you know, I think in terms of how I discovered sound... As an artist, it really came out of the fact that when I was at Hunter College, so I went to undergrad as a painter and an English major, and then I took some time off and went to Hunter College uh, to their MFA painting program. And all the while, I had always been interested in fairly sort of abstract, difficult music, And I had a really great studio made at Hunter. And so at that time, I was making, in the back of my studio, I was making all of these strange instruments out of motors and styrofoam and all of this uh, different stuff. But I was simultaneously making all of these paintings. And so at a certain point, I just completely shifted gears and decided to pursue sound. Even though it was halfway through my graduate degree, I just chucked everything and then started pursuing sound and really thinking, too, about transforming kind of humble materials into unexpected results. So this idea of, you know, objects that you wouldn't normally think of uh, as making sound suddenly emitting sound and, and sort of responding in different ways to a viewer and a listener. And that's definitely something that has uh, persisted in my work ever since.
0: I would perceive that as quite a big shift in terms of mediums but then also mindset of where you were heading. But does that kind of also play into your interdisciplinary approach? And how has that evolved? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know,
1: I'd always sort of started as an artist, as a visual person, and then suddenly I completely shifted gears. But, you know, it's never like I really abandoned The visual either. So most of my work deals with sound in one way or another, but it doesn't always make sound. So some things could be more sort of visual projects or more about materials, but sound is often kind of the thing that I'm investigating. In terms of that kind of interdisciplinarity, though, in those earlier years, I was just trying to figure it out, frankly. You know, I really didn't know what I was doing. And it was kind of a liberation because when you're a painter, you're always sort of jammed up against the history of painting. Everything is a comparison to something, you know, in the gallery or in the museum, whereas sound... There was just fewer reference points. So for me, I kind of felt like I could start as a complete amateur and sort of bumble around to try to find my own solutions. I kind of had the permission to just figure it out as I was going. That was just a total liberation. But one of the things I did do while I was at Hunter, even though I was trying to figure this out, is I... um became acquainted with this guy named James Revelle. He was a Juilliard-trained composer and really interesting guy who was into contemporary experimental music, but he was sort of interested in moving towards the art Angle. And here I was as this artist trying to think about moving towards sound. So we met each other at exactly the right point and started doing some collaborative work. We like to talk a lot about this idea of skill sharing at that time. You know, this was a while ago, it was like 1998. And we were totally skill sharing, and it was fantastic. I realized at that point, being a painter. It can be a pretty solitary pursuit, kind of in your head a lot. You get the work out there and maybe have a discussion about it. So I hadn't had a lot of experience with collaboration, and that really totally opened up my world. Like Being with James, it, it just started something at that moment. I've been collaborating ever since, and part of what was exciting to me was just this idea of letting someone else's viewpoint and their expertise into the formation of a work, and it ends up driving it in places that I wouldn't have
0: preconceived. And what did that early experimentation look like for you, or sound like, I guess?
1: I mean, that early experimentation with James, we were... One of the early projects we did was this... uh we wanted to use little radio transmitters and objects. And we wanted to make these objects that we would then leave. And keep in mind, this was pre-9-11, right? So we wanted to make these objects and leave them in public places and then record as someone took them and walked away with them. You know, sort of this idea of recording an environment through someone else's action. Well, what we found out is, first of all, the objects were weird. Maybe if they looked like a briefcase or something (laughs) maybe people would have taken them but we were making these totally crazy objects and people were not quick to take them so that was one of the things we learned really quickly but i think we were both interested in this idea of harvesting the sound around us and using it in different ways
0: and you said the objects were kind of weird can you describe one of them or well one
1: of them was a really old plastic container for a server or a hard drive or something but quite big you know cuz this is a little early so the the drives and stuff were bigger then so it was this thing and it was spray painted bright red and then it had this i think it was an empire state building no actually interestingly enough the 911 reference has has a connection here the top of it actually had a snow globe with the Twin Towers in it glued to the top. It was a very peculiar object, but we thought it looked cool. And we thought, God, someone's going to want to take this. But apparently it was too peculiar, I think, for someone to want to take home with them.
0: And people just kind of didn't know what to do with
1: them? They kind of walked around it. And, you know, there was one point where someone almost took it. I don't think we ever got anybody to take it. So it was purely theoretical in the end
0: i I wish i could see that so one of the projects i was interested in of yours was the silicate soundscape and the frozen words the use of glass in both of those and i was curious how that began but also what challenges there were in that project
1: we always think of sound as this kind of ephemeral difficult to grab onto, slippery kind of sensation i've always been just as as a maker as well as a sound maker Interested in materiality, and this glass was a really interesting uh, example. So the silicate soundscapes actually was sort of along the way of a a series of projects that dealt with glass, and that really started initially because I was invited to be an artist in residence at a place called Pilchuck Glass School, which is north of Seattle, and it is uh, you know sort of legendary well-regarded hotspot for glass artists and glass craftspeople and makers, where it's in the woods in Washington State. And it's this is an incredible place where people from all around the world come together and there are faculty there who lead these incredible classes and students come from all over the place to learn different skills or experiment with glass as a medium. They also have a an artist in residence project where they bring two artists in at a time. And really the desire is that glass is being used for all kinds of things in the art world, but it does have obvious sort of craft connotations. And I think What they always wanted to do at Pilchuck was ensure that there was still a link, even though there was a lot of incredible, deep, and respected sort of craft technique happening, that they wanted also to be sure that that medium still connected out to sort of conversations that were going on in the contemporary art world. So they would bring people in, and oftentimes artists who had no formal or prior work with glass at all, of which I was one. I had never been to a glass studio i'd never seen other than maybe some youtube videos i'd never seen people blowing glass and because they were keen to have people come in and explore it from a different angle i mean i always sort of position it like asking all the wrong questions like going in trying to do things that shouldn't be able to be done because the one thing i found out about glass artists is that they are incredible problem solvers and there is really nothing they want more than to be presented with a problem that's difficult because they'll want to try to figure it out. So that was really my beginning of working with glass and all kinds of things that I was interested in doing there. And part of what I'd started with was, again, this idea of materiality and glass and this idea of glass as a really peculiar kind of material right something that you deform with heat and then it turns into a liquid and then it fuses back into a solid and you can keep manipulating it and there's something always kind of magical and alchemical about that process that really appealed to me. So a lot of my initial ideas were this idea of thinking about this sort of language of scientific experimentation and this idea of transformation. So I was making these sort of scientific-y kind of objects and running these crazy experiments using dry ice and heat and glass and stuff. But one of the things that I did while I was there, because obviously I'm interested in sound, there was one of the TAs for one of the classes was a, a drummer in this sludgy metal band called Coffin. And this guy, Ben Portnoy, was a really great drummer. And so I figured... Oh, well, this is a great object. I'll do a collaboration with a percussionist. That sounds like why not? So I worked on a project with him where I had the glass blowers, these folks called gaffers, right? And the gaffers are basically these glass artists who can pretty much make anything. And this was a brother and sister team named Dan and Ray Friday. I asked them, Make me a whole bunch of objects that can just get broken. So I wanted them you know, to make things that just blow these big bubbles r- really with the intention of destroying them. Then we brought all of these objects up into the woods because there was this incredible patch of woods above the school. And then I asked students to make glass horns so that they would then have sort of a musical instrument of their own. I set up a whole like, a sound installation with these little motorized objects and stuff. But when people came up the hill... What they found was this guy, Ben, sort of with all of these objects, which he then pr- proceeded to play. So he played these objects and then just totally reduced them to dust, just through the act of playing them, brought them down to nothing really. And then everybody entered in with these horns and it was a bacchanalian, paganistic, ritualistic sounding experience. So th- this was this kind of one off thing I sort of designed while I was there. And that just kind of kept. I kept thinking about that more and more. I'd done other projects. I did one in Belgium with a percussionist there where I interviewed him and used his biography to work with glass artists to make objects that sort of represented different parts of his life, which he then played and destroyed. I worked on another project with two percussionists in which I used their DNA, used the sort of code of their DNA to create instructions for glassblowers to make objects. The same sort of data was used to develop sequences in their performance, so they would then follow these ridiculous instructions. I liked the
0: idea of absurdity, too, in my work, (laughs) so and that one was pretty absurd. That experience just sounds quite magical, and I think the evolution you're describing from that is quite beautiful. I was wondering if getting into glasses and medium was a pivot in how you collaborated, or if it was just more of an evolution from your earlier collaborations?
1: I think it was definitely, it sort of expanded. I was sort of thinking of the glass as this pivot, right? Everything started revolving around in the same way that I think of sound. Like sound is this kind of subject for me. And and the way that I would treat it would just depend on the kind of subject or the other kind of topic that I wanted to talk about, or the other kind of the sort of lens was, it sort of provided an entry point, point. the glass sort of provided a different entry point. So it was almost like sound and glass were two things that I could now respond to coming together. And so that kept shifting into these different contexts. So the context of a personal biography, or the context of someone's DNA, their genetic biography. Each time I was kind of trying to collaborate with different and bring different collaborators on board. So the DNA one, I was bringing different kinds of collaborators in, someone who worked with me to think about the code part. And I worked with uh, someone to think about the genetics part too, a scientist. It kept changing based on the subject. So the next one was that I put in a proposal to do a performance at Urban Glass, and that was this... Frozen Words Project. So I was still thinking about this idea of a percussion and glass, but then suddenly it took on um, this political bent. Uh, this was, you know, just after uh, Donald Trump was elected. So suddenly I was thinking about this idea of fragility and and sort of breakages and violence, but then also it came together with another component, which was this story called Gargantuan Panagruel by this. 16th century author named Francois Rabelais. So I took on this whole other thing. But then it suddenly became about language. And so these frozen objects were then equated with these sort of bombastic Trump speak, these things would get sort of drawn with these words on the glass that would then get destroyed. And that ended up leading to other projects, which was a 12-channel sound installation based on that. I sort of follow, you know, I follow the work and and let it kind of take these curves and kind of, I, I'm sometimes following behind it as it evolves over time. You had asked too about the Silicate Soundscapes one. And That came about because um, Ben Wright, is someone I'd worked with in the past, he was the director of education at Urban Glass, an incredible, incredible craftsperson and fantastic artist who works with science and glass, actually, which was always of real interest to me. And at a certain point, he asked if I wanted to teach a class at Urban Glass, at which point I was like, I don't know how to blow glass. (laughs) You know, at all this time I've been doing all this work with glass artists, I had, I'm i not myself a glass artist. So he taught the glass part and I taught the sound part. So we were really looking at leading a group of students through what did it mean to sort of work with glass, not only as kind of a material to make objects, but also really explicitly as a kind of medium to draw sound from. It also tied into the fact that I'm a teacher and thinking gave me a sort of a new perspective on it.
0: Modern cities are so full of glass. And I was wondering, through your experiences, how architects might apply some learnings or kind of some abstractions to dealing with glass in cities.
1: You know, think about, well, they can always break all the windows. You know, that's that would be my solution. Um, ways that I've been dealing with glass lately has really been this idea of the kind of materiality of it and this kind of idea of breakage and kind of embracing the fragility of it as as a material. But then also, I mean, a lot of glass artists experiment too, visually with glass, obviously, right? It's got all these incredible optical qualities. So there's something interesting, I think, about that intersection of of this sort of optical distortion and the way that it distorts sound as a medium. Sound is complex and full of contradiction, you know? So if you think about sound It's often something that you would consider as something that ties us together, right? The sound is always sort of bouncing out there between us, and we can lean in to listen more closely, and we can make connections to other people or to the objects or world around us through sound. But also at the same time, sound can mask other things, right? You have a really loud construction noise, and you don't hear that very important phrase that someone might be whispering to you. So there's that really interesting thing that sound is something that. Both unites us and divides us, and I think, interestingly, you know, the thing about buildings, they're sort of a natural barrier to the outside world. You know, so if you look at so many towers, they're sealed in, so there isn't this kind of porosity between the inside and the outside that you might have by just, you know, if I lean over right now to where I'm to where I am here and open the window, you know, I'm going to hear. I'm going to hear the cars outside, but if you're in that if you're in that tower, you're not going to necessarily hear that. So there's something interesting there. I don't know what it means, <laughs> but but I do know that there is some something complex about that. The way we we seal ourselves in from the sonic environment around us.
0: Okay, back to the collaboration and teaching. How have those two evolved for you? The teaching part has been
1: huge. I mean, at Parsons where I teach. I'm a full-time faculty there. I've taught all kinds of different things uh, over time, everything from painting and drawing classes to classes on collaboration, to classes on time-based media. At a certain point, I started just kind of like moving myself as much as possible to teaching about sound in one way or another. And that was sometimes kind of hijacking some classes to talk more intensely about sound within them. But more often than not, it's been to actually develop classes that really can kind of get at some of this uh, stuff that I'm interested in in my own research. You know, I think it's always a dream of anybody who's a teacher to have their practice and their research intersect meaningfully with what they do in the classroom. And for me, it was always a bit sort of tangential, right? I mean, I'm an artist. uh, I'd worked in some design firms and things like that. So there was always that connection, but there was always this lacking sort of connection to sound. So when I started really working with sound, it just sort of opened everything up and it There was this kind of interchange between what I was doing in my studio and doing thinking about with sound and what I was leading classes about and sort of encouraging my students to experiment with. There is nothing like teaching to get you to really dig deep into a topic because you're not going to be comfortable if you don't know what the hell you're talking about. So for me, it was like I'd always approached sound a lot in my own work, but mostly improvisationally things to try to figure out not only how they work, but my way of making them work. Obviously, with teaching, I want to make sure that I'm framing everything correctly. So suddenly, I was on this path of just digging super deep into the research and reading a lot and pulling together tons of resources for my students. And that had a really profound influence to help to sort of shape directions that my my own practice would
0: do. One of the things that stuck with me the first time we had met when you were discussing part of your teaching was the sound walks, And I was, A, curious if you could describe those, but then, B... What was the importance of isolating sound as a sense? How has that evolved through your teaching?
1: Yeah, the sound walk there's a lot of different ways to that you might go about a sound walk, and a sound walk really you know at its core, it's about this idea of engaging sensorially with sound in a way that you might otherwise ignore. So what does it mean to go walking through an environment that you might otherwise not recognize the sonic world around you, either because you've got headphones on or because you're maybe more concerned with not getting hit by a car or you're looking at the things around you and you're not kind of listening to the kind of qualities of the things that are happening in the sonic environment as an experience for their ears. And often these are things that would run counter to what you might think you want to listen to. So for example, one of the famous examples, taking this group of people to the Con Ed power plant over on the East River. And so listening to this as kind of an experience. So there's that kind of a sound walk. Then there may be our sound walks where you are thinking more sort of Explicitly about what is existing in nature in your surroundings, things like that. You know, how do you remain focused? Like, one thing that's really difficult for us as listeners is just remembering to listen. I mean, try to spend a half an hour listening intensely. You know, in about three minutes, you're distracted by something or you're distracted by one sound. And so you're not thinking of the 50 other sounds. And this is just the way our attention works. We're constantly filtering. I went on a sound walk. It was along the waterfront. It was in Dumbo in Brooklyn. And the the folks who were leading the sound walk said, like, at any time you find yourself getting distracted, not listening intently, just listen to your own footsteps. Because, like, suddenly, oh... I became aware that my feet were making that sound. So as soon as I focused on it, it kind of pulled me back into the moment. And I think that's one of the real values of a sound walk is that you are actually thinking about the connection of yourself in that moment. Yeah, I think the challenge is always calming down, you know. It's like this is like a, a me- it's like a meditation, you know. I mean, the first thing you have to get over is just being freaked out. You know, that someone's leading you around blindfolded, (laughs) you know, it's, that's the the hardest thing is like getting comfortable with the fact that the person has your best interests at heart and they don't want you to trip. So, you know, that, I think that takes time and I think it takes practice and I think good listening takes practice. And I think, you know, setting up those conditions for someone else is part of the challenge. It's really kind of getting them um, comfortable enough to be able to listen openly. And there's there's people whose entire practice is centered around that. So, you know, there's certainly sonic meditation practices, but then there's also someone like um, Pauline Oliveros, who really kind of founded this idea of deep listening, which a lot of it is about this idea of sort of a kind of sonic meditation, but also this kind of connection between sound and empathy, right? This idea of being able to sort of begin to think about others and how sound as a way can can begin to connect you meaningfully to other people. Sound is an interesting thing. I think it really connects us, but it can also divide us. So I think having a greater sort of understanding of that sort of sensitivity that we might have to listening becomes really useful for people, especially artists and designers who are often ignoring that sense.
0: One of the concepts I kind of fell in love with during this project has been this idea of profound silence, uh, which is the science after crescendo. And the fact that we're sort of experiencing something like that now, maybe at kind of a larger scale than one would experience in a meditative practice. I want to move on to the Sound of Mountain project, and then kind of explore how your collaboration has changed there, looking at biodiversity through sound and what that means
1: yeah the sound the mound project was uh it it kind of started with my just stirring up trouble sometimes by bringing things together that may not necessarily seem like they should go together and one of them was um, this idea that we have at parsons a lot of people and organizations that we collaborate with and we're always looking for interesting people to work with and so Fresh Kills Park is a former landfill in Staten Island, was the largest landfill in the world. I had a a colleague at Parsons who who knew the education and sort of grants and arts directors there. And he said, well, let's go out to Fresh Kills and, and take a look and see if there's any way that you might dream up some projects to work with Fresh Kills. Because at the time, basically, Fresh Kills was a landfill. But it had been closed down, and the the goal was essentially to turn it into this giant park, this incredible resource in the middle of Staten Island, which is a very long and challenging project. And so one of the problems with, with this project is the fact that it would be a while before it was really open up to other people as a public park you know so one of the things that we're interested in is how could they begin to collaborate with others artists designers other organizations if to the very least sort of connecting people to the understanding that this was going on right that it would be a park that this would be an incredible resource but also enable this sort of ability for the public to see this transformation, what had happened. And it's a model, you know, uh, this idea of sort of reclaiming these sort of blights to become these new ecological havens for migrating birds, for example. In terms of what we did was I went out there and this was an incredible place. You get out there and it's like, the soundscape is completely different. It's very quiet. You have this incredible view of the city. You're on these rolling hills. And it was wild to be there. So I thought, okay, this is really great. And then somewhere around the same time, I was introduced to a guy named Adam Wolf, who started this company called Arable Labs. And Arable Labs creates this remote sensing Technology And he is someone who is a biologist, uh, but really interested in technology. He was interested in agriculture, this idea that in a time of climate change, that farmers need to understand more quickly and more accurately what the weather means in relation to their crops, for example. As sort of timelines change and as climates change, the way that we treat our crops changes as well. I was like, okay, this is interesting. So maybe I can take one of these objects or a series of these objects that generate lots of data. So what they're doing is they put all of these sensors and these things that are called arable marks, you basically plant them amidst your crops. And it's looking at the crops and sort of sensing the color of them and measuring rainfall and humidity. And all of this sort of data is constantly getting pulled in. So my first thought was, well, what happens if you think about that in relation to sound? So the prompt was to think about these two different partners in relation to each other. At the same time, I sort of pitched this as an idea for the Transdisciplinary Design uh, MFA program at Parsons, and they were really interested in the idea that, well, it'd be great to run a class where this partnership is highlighted. So it was at that time that I was introduced to Andrew Shea and he and I ran this project through our Transdisciplinary Design class and using these two things as a prompt. right? So we have Fresh Kills Park, former landfill, and we have this device that can sort of generate all this data. And that led to a number of different project ideas, but one of them that really stuck was called Botanical Transmissions, and that one really was the idea of sort of generating music from this environmental data, opposed to just the idea of generating a a song. The idea that was generated from this group was this idea of not necessarily making music for us, for humans, but instead to be making music for the plants themselves. So what happens when you have one of these marks and it's looking down at the ground at what's growing around there. And it's generating music that reflects how well those things are growing. while well, it's simultaneously going out to a network of other de- similar devices and certain patches may be growing better than other patches. It would take the day, the sound that was coming out of the one that was growing best and send that and alter the algorithm of what was generating the music in another one. So it would begin to sort of spread. And this is kind of based on this idea that sound, plants might grow better with with music, right? This is kind of something that came out of you know, the seventies, there were a lot of people who were experimenting with playing music for their plants and things like that. So that was sort of a a little conceptual thing thrown in there. But the idea I think that really was interesting about this was this idea of what the students called plant-centered design. This idea that instead of maybe thinking about the sound as necessarily pointing to us as humans, that it's making us think a little bit differently about the environment itself.
0: I was curious what insights you've gotten so far from the data. But then also I wanted to bring up that if this kind of similar framework could be applied to urban centers,
1: bring it back to humans. This project has kind of been going in fits and starts and it sort of has taken a few different turns. And as the park itself, continues to evolve. We've have yet to really deploy it. I mean, we have one of these devices, but we really need to get it out into the park. So the first thing that we need to really see is how time affects it. So, you know, if you're listening in winter versus spring versus summer, like does that change? So, I think in terms of cities, certainly I think people have thought about this idea. There's certainly a a deep trend towards sonification which is this idea that you're taking data and you're converting it into sound so i mean we're perfectly comfortable with this idea of visualization we we see it all the time in just like a weather report we're seeing things like temperature and humidity converted to something that's visual but sound has its own sort of interesting possibilities where you take you know, traffic data and you convert it into sound. And because sound is a time-based medium, you can understand this idea of change in a really different way as you hear things ebb and flow and get faster and slower, pitches change. So I think there's something interesting just in that idea of being able to connect with conditions in a different way. And certainly I think the urban environment is a place where this could be potentially utilized for people to recognize things that they might otherwise ignore. It's different. I think sonification is just different, right? Because it's it's taking one kind of an experience, something numerical, and it's converting it into something sensorial in terms of listening. And that's different than just going out and listening, right? It's like you're listening for data, you're listening for information. And I think that has tremendous value. But I think there's also just t- tremendous value in hearing the world around you. I mean, that idea of how has the sound environment changed in this COVID moment, I think it's fascinating because I don't think there'd be many people who would argue that the soundscape has gotten worse with this time, right? I mean, I think we would all probably agree that geez, you know, it's nice to take a walk outside and not constantly have to listen to tons of traffic. That's been a tremendous shifted environment. And yet I think there's a certain part of us too, that we adapt really quickly, right? So as soon as things open up and as soon as there's more goods moving around and things are opened up, the trucks will be back. And will we remember that we had this haven of calm? I hope we do, but I do that there's a certain part of us that because of this sort of fragile connection to attention that we have, that we can tune that noise out. We're often pretty good at that. So it's easy to see this blissful byproduct of this unfortunate pandemic get forgotten.
0: What aspects of the soundscape of COVID-19 and the corresponding stay-at-home period uh, do you think will persist after stay-at-home regulations are lifted?
1: I hope that people really recognize that... um, things one thing that i've noticed one thing i've noticed in my own backyard is just the birds right that i can hear them <laughs> and there was a period there we're kind of on a flight path where we are too right so even just the decrease of planes That was huge. When you don't have this incredible low-frequency swoosh over your head all the time, this idea that just removes so much kind of low-frequency noise pollution out of the environment, it allows you to focus on something else. I fear that it will be short-lived. How do you think
0: this might affect the soundscapes of our public spaces?
1: Definitely things that people have done in the past to attempt to shift our quality of hearing. Janet Sada Khan did a lot in terms of rethinking public space. And part of that was by creating bike paths. You know, sometimes it meant reducing the size of car lanes. And one thing she did, too, that was really interesting was this idea of creating pedestrian plazas in very busy areas. So, for example, in Times Square, she basically closed traffic going down Broadway, which was just absolutely unheard of. And that really changed that sonic environment. So I would hope that some of these things might rub off a little bit more, that people might find they can communicate more easily when they can hear what each other are saying. You can have more quality of listening or be able to hear things in a different way. That's one of the interesting things about going out to a place, for example, like Fresh Kills Park, is that not only are you hearing things in a different way, but by creating that, you're allowing a different kind of soundscape to occur. And in the case of Fresh Kills, it's changed flight paths for birds. So migratory birds are coming through there that either they haven't seen for a long time, or that there are sort of new flight routes coming in, that there are species that are coming through there that they'd never seen before. And that, of course, is going to change the soundscape of that place.
0: If you were designing a utopian city space from scratch with little to no restrictions, what would it sound like for you?
1: Ideally, you know, this would be the promise of a shifted reliance on fossil fuels is that we would have different kinds of cars, you know? I mean, I think that's where so much of the sort of sound of a city comes from is this kind of low frequency, low frequency sound from cars. And part of that is just trucks and engines. But I guess also another part of that is the street. So tires on the street produce a certain kind of frequency and that really just creates this incredibly thick blanket of sound so you know maybe different kinds of streets uh that we can actually sort of enjoy the quality of the sound around us in a different way
0: are there aspects of your own soundscape that you notice more now Something that I think I've
1: noticed is that when I'm sitting here at my desk, where I'm sitting now, it's by our street, which tends to be pretty quiet, but there are big cars and trucks that come through sometimes, and they've just been less frequent. So I'm actually noticing the trucks, which I guess is not a good thing, but it's definitely something I have noticed that just by being this sort of anomaly, it suddenly has a certain amount of presence.
0: What type of sounds are you most drawn to in cities, and why are these so important? I tend to be drawn to like weird combinations of sounds,
1: like I love nothing more than going down the street and hearing the drone of an air conditioner that's harmonizing with a faulty tailpipe on a car and a bird, so I'm, I'm always listening for these things. While the drone is something particular to the post-industrial revolution. You know, the industrial revolution brought about this idea of these sort of mechanical drones. They tend to pollute our environment. I have to admit that I have a tendency to really seek them out, and I like to go out and record them. So, you know, there is something there that I, I kind of really like about that. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. Thank
0: you for listening to the Urban Echo Podcast. I'm your host, Oscar Schein. i like to thank our guest today, John Roach. Thank you to Rose Pember and Shane Carter for advising on the project. Our intro music is composed by Dan Yap. Remember to subscribe. Our podcast can be found on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you.